Dear God, we thank you that we can come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and that we can stand in your presence this morning seeking to know you better, to understand the word which you have given to us. And I pray that you will give us insight and understanding. Father, even though we live so many years down the line from some of the events, all of the events, in fact, recorded in, in the scripture, we recognize, Lord, that the lives that are reflected there, the events which took place, the attitudes which are displayed, really are modern in, in every sense of the word except for the historical aspect. Lord, people have not changed. Our needs have not changed. Our attitudes towards eternity have not changed. And so, Lord, help us to see how you are speaking to us through the life of Joseph and others. Lord, I pray for your special blessing upon each one today, that each need will be met by your Spirit's power. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to begin by reading uh, the first six verses of the 39th chapter of Genesis. Genesis 39, verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard brought, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken, taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge and it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned the Lord blessed the Egyptians house on account of Joseph thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. As we begin looking more in detail at the life of Joseph in Egypt, we're going to be looking, of course, at the final episode of the book of Genesis. The last 11 chapters of the book deal specifically with the man, Joseph, and what we find as we go through this is a person upon whom as much emphasis seems to be placed nearly as was placed upon Abraham. Certainly more time is given to Joseph than to either Isaac or Jacob in the narrative of Genesis. So we're looking at a very, very, uh, not only important part of the book of Genesis, but probably better known part of the book of Genesis in many ways. Most of us remember if we've, if we've been Sunday school people, that is if we went to Sunday school as young people, We've heard the life of Joseph or stories about the life of Joseph on many occasions, and he's been one of our favorite characters, I'm sure. But I want for us, first of all, to put him into a time frame. And that's one of the reasons I made this early Egyptian chronology uh, handout for you today. This particular uh, handout was made specifically relative to statements not only in Genesis but in other portions of the scripture. In fact, you'll discover on uh, the second page 
that there are references to Kings and Chronicles and Jeremiah and Daniel. And of course, there's even a reference at the end to Matthew chapter 2. Because you remember the account that when uh, Herod sought to destroy the children in Bethlehem, that God in a dream appeared to Joseph and sent him off down to Egypt. And so Jesus actually lived in Egypt for a period of time. Ever wonder whatever happened to the, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that was given as a gift to Jesus? Probably that's what financed their expedition and enabled them to survive while they were down in Egypt because Joseph and Mary were very poor people. They didn't have wealth to just take a trip and live for months or however long uh, they lived down in the land of Egypt. Let me just briefly uh, touch on, on this outline here, this handout for you. This, of course, is the chronology of Egypt pre-Islam. Islam doesn't come uh, into Egypt until the 7th century AD. And so we're talking about the period of time down to uh, the advent of Rome in Egypt. Uh, Egypt was thought for many, many years to be the oldest of civilizations because its antiquity is more obvious than much of the antiquity of uh, what we would call today the Valley of the Tigris-Euphrates or the land of Iraq, where a great deal of archaeology has had to be done in order to uncover civilizations that were as old and even older uh, than the Egyptian civilization. But as you know, if you've ever been to Egypt or seen lots of pictures, there are pyramids, there are obelisks, there are all kinds of features that have been left in Egypt from thousands of years back, attesting to the antiquity of that culture. Whereas in Mesopotamia, because much there was built with mud, brick, and so forth, has deteriorated over time, it's much more difficult, except through uh, a great deal of archaeological uh, probing, to discover the, uh, the old history of that part of the world. And of course, what they have discovered is that Sumeria, which existed before Babylon existed, that is, before the Babylonian culture existed, was actually even older in its earlier aspects than Egypt. But you'll notice here we're going clear back to the fourth millennium. 3100 BC is approximately the time when Egypt began to coalesce as, as a nation. And Upper and Lower Egypt, these were two uh, sort of confederacies that were joined together by a man by the name of Amenes who's, who's thought to also be a Narmer, even though some think they're different people, but they're this, this man is so far back in Egyptian history, it's sort of like you look through the clouds and it's really difficult to nail this down. But this is the period of the first two dynasties of pharaohs. Um, Egypt, early Egyptian history is summarized in 31 dynasties. 31 dynasties from 3100 B.C. to about 332 B.C. when Alexander the Great entered the land. The Old Kingdom is the kingdom of, of greatest glory in all of Egypt. From 2800 to 2200 BC, the dynasties uh, three through six, this is the Great Pyramid Age. And most of us, when we think of Egypt, we think of pyramids, right? Because those are the pictures they always show, pyramids. They show the three great pyramids at Giza, north of, of uh, what used to be Memphis, uh, west on the west side of modern city of Cairo. These, these great pyramids, and I've listed there for you four of the major names in, in pyramid building. Joser, who ordered the first great, uh, first large pyramid, it's called the Step Pyramid, looks like a wedding cake, uh, to be built. And that seemed to be the, the uh, uh, pattern upon which the later pyramids were built. The greatest of all the pyramids in terms of size 
was the Great Pyramid of Giza built by Khufu in the 26th. Then you see the others there. And we're not concerned with that in, in that it's pre-Abraham. The whole old kingdom was pre-Abraham in its time frame. The first intermediate period was a time when Egypt went into remission, if you will, uh, a period of chaos sent in, and uh, it became a collection of city-states called gnomes. And uh, Abraham came into Egypt during that time, it is believed. The Genesis chapter 12, we read about Abraham going down there. And it was a time of weakness in Egypt. So when he faced the pharaoh of Egypt, he wasn't facing uh, a pharaoh of great power at that time because Egypt was in a period of decline. Uh, this is followed by the Middle Kingdom, and that's what we're concerned with specifically today because uh, this is the period in which Joseph and the family of Jacob go into Egypt. The Middle Kingdom being between the Old and the, and the New Kingdom, the least more uh, powerful of those uh, three kingdoms in Egyptian history. Somewhat still feudalistic, the state was. And uh, today we look at Genesis 39 when Joseph goes into Egypt. Later on we'll be looking at Genesis 46 when the whole family moves down into Egypt and the captivity or the, um, what shall we call it, the slavery period will ultimately begin a little bit later on, probably following or during the second intermediate period, which you see there from 1800 to 1575. I should say these dates are very approximate. You'll find that uh, one source after another will give you quite uh, you know, considerable variation, sometimes 100 years or more, on uh, some of these periods. So it's just not really nailed down. One of the reasons for this is our primary source is a man by the name of Manetho, who was a Greek Egyptian who lived in the fourth century BC, long time after most of this. And he's the one who kind of divided Egyptian history into dynasties. Uh, and so we are pretty much dependent upon on him in many ways. You'll notice under the second intermediate period, uh, it's, it mentions the fact that the Israelites are in Goshen. That's where they initially entered the land of Egypt and that's where they lived. And that's way up in the north part of Egypt. That's in the delta. And so they lived in, in what would be called lower Egypt, lower in elevation than upper Egypt. And then the new kingdom and uh, you can look at that at your own leisure. There's no purpose right now in, in looking at that because that will be the period. Well, in a, in a sense, I suppose, if you look at uh, New Kingdom, the fourth line down, Amos is thought to have been the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and that's the way the book of Exodus begins. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and many feel it was the first Pharaoh of the 18th dynasty the, when the Hyksos rule was over with, the shepherd kings, the Asiatics who ruled a portion of Egypt at least. You, you have a pharaoh comes along and says, who's this Joseph guy? You know, I mean, he's a foreigner. He's, he's part of the Hyksos as far as I'm concerned. And so the people who were associated with him, his family, uh, were put under the most severe time of uh, slavery there in Egypt. And then Amenophis II is thought to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. If you go with the later, or the, the uh, earlier chronology of 15th century Exodus. If you go with a 13th century Exodus, then Ramses II is thought to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. And his personality sure fits the uh, pharaoh that's described there in the book of Exodus. But there, there is division amongst uh, Christian scholars as to whether the Israelites left Egypt in the 15th century or left in the 13th century. And it's based on various kinds of archaeological uh, discoveries. 
And then as you go on down through the second page, you'll discover Solomon. Remember, Solomon married a daughter of Pharaoh. Probably that was a daughter of Pharaoh of the 21st dynasty in the third intermediate period. Some of you saw the film, what was it called now? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Did you ever try to figure the theological implications of that movie? I mean, there were some, even though I'm, I'm sure that wasn't high in the mind of the director of the film. But that, that whole film is based on the theory that if you look on the second page, the um, two, three, four, five, six line down, you see Shishak attacked Jerusalem about 925 B.C. The film is based on the theory that when this invasion took place, that this man took the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and took it back with him to Egypt. And that's the whole premise of the uh, film. And it's not totally uh, a shot in the dark concept. There are those who believe that it was Shishak who removed much of the uh, implements out of the temple because they're not referred to again in scripture after that time. Others, of course, feel that it wasn't until the time of Nebuchadnezzar uh, that this happened. And, and then other events are mentioned here. Jeremiah being taken into Egypt uh, in the 6th century. Then the story of Daniel 11. Have you ever read Daniel 11 with any degree of understanding? Daniel 11 talks about the king of the north and the king of the south, and they're doing battle together. It seems to be almost a blow-by-blow -blow prediction of the events which would take place in Egypt or between Egypt, the Ptolemaic rule of Egypt and the Seleucid rule of uh, Syria in, in the period, oh, about the third and fourth centuries B.C., which involved Palestine. And Palestine was sort of in between, and the battles were fought back and forth across this land. And it seems to have implications for the end times also, but was based on events which took place about 2,000 years ago in uh, involving Egypt. So anyway, uh, at your own leisure, if you'd like to peruse that chronology, kind of gives you a place where it all fits together here. So what we have is Joseph going down into Egypt. He's 17 years of age, the scripture tells us, when he's carried off down into Egypt. And he goes into Egypt in probably the 12th dynasty, possibly the late 20th century BC, about 4,000 years ago, or in the 19th century BC. During this time, Egyptian influence was felt in Palestine, but it was not overpowering because Egyptian influence was primarily oriented towards the south. Egypt was a land of just a narrow valley and a delta. And uh, so movement in Egypt was north and south, along the river Nile, and sometimes beyond what is modern Egypt, even into what is today modern Sudan. We're told in the passage this morning that Joseph was sold to an Egyptian by the name of Potiphar. The scripture says that he was the Tsar, which means captain or prince of the Pharaoh's bodyguard. We're talking about a man of very high standing here in the land, uh, a man who was responsible for the personal safety of the Pharaoh himself. What really comes out of this passage, I think, as we study it, is the fact that God's hand is upon this man, Joseph. 
And God's hand is upon the man Joseph for two reasons, for Joseph's good and for God's purposes to be fulfilled. Just think about it for a moment. Why was Joseph sold to Potiphar? He could have been sold to almost any Egyptian nobleman. I mean, he was probably bought, brought to a slave market. And, and there he was auctioned off. And he could have been sold to somebody who lived way out in the boondocks someplace and would have had only a peripheral influence, if any at all, upon the events, the important events of Egypt. But instead, he is sold to the captain of the bodyguard of the Pharaoh himself, and he lives in the nerve center of the kingdom. And the reason is obvious for that as the chapters uh, unfold because we see the role that God has for Joseph in changing the history of a nation. From the historical and archaeological discoveries that have been made, we have what may be the following scenario relative to Joseph. He was bought by Potiphar. He was taken to Potiphar's estate. Potiphar certainly had a major estate there in the city, probably not very far from the palace of the pharaoh himself. There is a reference here that we read that indicates he also owned some lands, probably outside of the city of Memphis, which was a great walled city along the Nile River, probably either north or south of the city itself in the actual Nile Valley. He probably owned some lands as part of his, of his wealth and his reward for his service. Joseph was taken through the high, high walls of this estate, away from the streets of the city of Cairo, into a little world that was isolated from the rest by the walls, the high walls around this estate. In the center of the state was this, this great, probably two-story building that may have been made out of adobe, but may have also been made out of stone because much, much in Memphis was made out of stone. Whatever it was, it was highly decorated. And all around this house were gardens and ponds and other things were characteristic of the noblemen of that day in Egypt. It was a world that Joseph had never seen before. He himself probably lived either in a separate building that was set aside by the, for the servants or in the lower floor of the main house. And the second floor was given completely over to the family. A, f a family who lived in a way that Joseph had never dreamed of before in his life. Uh, on the top of the building was a roof garden. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been to Egypt, especially to Cairo, <laughs> but it's one dry place. It's also quite warm. And so roof gardens were very characteristic in those days, a place to go to get away uh, and, and to sit in the shade of a tree and experience what coolness comes from the evapotranspiration involved. With the, with the vegetation. Joseph probably had never seen a bed in the sense of an Egyptian bed before. He had never seen a chair in the sense of, of a chair here before. I mean, after all, he lived in a goat hair tent. I mean, to him, furnishings were a, were a rug thrown on the, on, on the ground or a pillow over a series of pillows over in the corner. This was furnishings for Bedouins, but, but a house with furniture in it, you know, made out of wood and uh, beautifully inlaid. Uh, it was amazing, certainly, to this man, Joseph, to see this kind of thing probably for the first time. From the biblical narrative alone, we cannot 
determine exactly where Joseph was. There are a couple of evidences in the uh, passage which go along with the historical knowledge of this period to tell us where he was. First of all, he was sold to Potiphar. The name Potiphar means he belongs to Ra, R-A, or Re, R-E, who was the principal sun god of this portion of Egypt. The center of the worship of this god was Heliopolis, which was north of Memphis. And uh, Heliopolis was a, a great religious city. They, they, had, they worshiped there what was known as the Heliopolis Aeneid, the, the, the nine gods of Heliopolis. And uh, <clears throat> Ray was the principal god. We know also from history that Memphis was the capital of the Middle Kingdom. So Memphis is the capital of the Middle Kingdom. Potiphar is he who belongs to Ray, which would indicate a southern, uh, that is a northern derivation for Potiphar. And then later on we're going to discover that Joseph is given a, br a bride who is the daughter of the priest at On. On was the Egyptian term for Heliopolis. On, as far as the Bible is concerned anyway. And, and so all of this put together tells us that Joseph was in Memphis. Not Tennessee, but Memphis in Egypt. Now, Memphis is, is largely gone today. There's very little evidence of it today. There's an obelisk here and a part of a wall there. There's a great graveyard, though, on the whole uh, western side of the Nile Valley. They call it the necropolis, the city of the dead. And they buried their people on the other side of the river. And this, the graveyard, now this is just the graveyard for the city of Memphis, stretches 30 kilometers along the Nile River. It was a big city. In fact, it was probably one of the biggest cities of the world at the time we're talking about. It was known as the city of the White Walls. Beautiful city of Memphis. And so that's certainly where Joseph has been taken at this particular time. Where is Heliopolis today? Well, if you go to Cairo and you walk around in the northern suburbs, you'll be walking over it. It's buried under parts of modern Cairo. The first phrase of the second verse is the key to the life of Joseph in Egypt. And the Lord was with Joseph. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is now also the God of Joseph. And God is with Joseph for the purpose of fulfilling the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham so many years before. And what's interesting is that in that covenant promise is a statement that would allude to what is about to take place in the lives of the Israelites. Let me go back to the 15th chapter. You may remember a couple of years ago we studied this passage. Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell on him. And God said to Abram, Know for a certain that your descendants will be slay strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. 
and afterward they will come out with many possessions. I mean, that is a direct prophecy relative to the events of the book of Exodus. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God was not finished dealing with the people who lived in Canaan, and that would not occur until the 400 years after they went into the land, and God said, now judgment will fall upon the land of Canaan. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces of the sacrificial animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Not an all-inclusive uh, you know, all list, but a list of the major peoples who lived in Canaan, meaning that this land would be theirs as they moved into it. Now, you can be pretty sure that Joseph knew of this covenant. Remember, in those days, it was very common for them to sit around the fire at night and to tell the stories of the past. After all, they had no television. They had no radio. They had no other means to entertain themselves or to communicate. And so they would sit around the fire at night and the stories of the past would be related. And certainly Abraham uh, told of the event which we read about here in the 15th chapter to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to his sons. And so Joseph had heard the story probably many times and he knew uh, of the promise that God had made and it was probably uh, something that may have even disturbed him. What, what do we mean being enslaved for 400 years in a strange land? What, what's this all mean? I think Joseph had no idea that when he was sold into Egypt that that had anything to do with this covenant. You know, we, we look at it with hindsight and we say, well, certainly, you know, Joseph. How would Joseph know? Put yourself in Joseph's place. How would he know that his presence in Egypt would have anything to do with God's promise to Abraham several hundred years before? I think it's really important for us to constantly remind ourselves that Joseph was successful because the Lord was with him. Because that tells us volumes about what we can expect today. I think we have to be very careful that we don't view Joseph as having been charmed or enchanted or somehow a miraculous man who wherever he went, you know, just everything uh, turned to gold or some such thing. We have to go back and look at this man Joseph as he lived there and see what kind of characteristics he displayed. This, this was a man who was careful. He was careful in all that he did, and we see that coming out of this passage. He was conscientious. He strove to do right everything that he did, and he was a man who was committed. Committed to his God and committed to his employer, and he, and he gave himself fully for his task. And so, his abilities, whatever God-given abilities he, he had, were enhanced by his attitude, by his commitment, his conscientiousness, and by his carefulness. And so God blessed him. Now, that does not mean that the old cliche we hear so many times is biblical, you know, that God blesses, that, that God helps those who help themselves. 
uh, you know, the thieves use that quite a bit as a, um, you know, <laughs> excuse for doing what they do. But we use it in a different way. We think, well, if we really work hard and we do our dead level best, then, then God's going to really help us. Well, maybe if we're doing what God's called us to do and we're walking in obedience to Him and our desire is to serve Him and our, our desire is to be a blessing to others, then yes. But we can't expect just because we try to do the best on something that automatically God has to bless it because it may, be, may not be God's direction. In our rights-oriented society, in our selfish society, the truth of doing one's dead level best even in unpleasant circumstances has largely been lost. How many people today do you know of, hopefully all, this, all of you do do this, but there are so many in our society that if they don't like the environment, they don't like their boss, or they don't like something else, they'll do a yucky job. I mean, it's good enough. It doesn't really matter. They don't care. Well, there's a passage in Scripture that tells us as Christians that can never, never be our attitude. In Colossians, this is not only in Colossians, it's in many places, but it's very pointed here. I think in Colossians chapter 3, and this applies directly to Joseph and through Joseph to us today. In, jo uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, we read this. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I didn't write it down, but verse 17 repeats the same concept. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to, the, to God the Father. This does not mean that we're supposed to go and teach our Sunday school class this way, but go to work and work half-hearted. It means in whatever we set our hands to do, whether it means to play or it means to work, it means to teach or it means to, to live in His example. Whatever it is, we are called in Christ's name to do it heartily unto the Lord and to recognize that we're doing it for Him and not for anybody else. It's not for our boss. It's not for our, pre, uh, our, our, uh, our pastor or our Sunday school superintendent. It's, it's not for our husband or for our wife or our children. It's for God first. And if we think about that, He is the creator of all. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the one to whom we owe everything. He is the one before whom we must bow with all of our being. If we look at it that way, how can we do less than our best, even if it's a yucky job, even if it's cleaning latrines? We should be the best latrine cleaner around for the glory of his name. And that's a powerful message that comes through this man, Joseph. We'll see that, I, th I think, as we go along here. It's, it's very obvious, as you read this passage, that Joseph was not quiet about his faith. That Joseph didn't, you know, go off in the corner and say, Dear Lord, bless me today. Don't let anybody see me. And go off and do his thing. Because how in the world did Potiphar know that he was blessed because of Joseph's God? unless Joseph made it quite clear who his God was. Joseph faithfully worshipped God. And this is witnessed, and, and, and he witnessed 
uh, his, that his success was attributable to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. Potiphar became quite convinced that he was being blessed because of Joseph. Now, was Potiphar a religious man? Probably, as much as most Egyptians were religious people in those days. You ever want to read confusing mythology? Try to sit down and read Egyptian mythology. It'll drive you up the wall. Because there's just hundreds of gods and goddesses, and, and they come by diff different mysterious ways into existence. I mean, it's all purely made up. But, you know, it's, it's taught as if this is really what happened. It's more confusing than Greek mythology as you try to work your way through it. Because there was a center of religion at Memphis, there was another center at Thebes, and then there were various gods and goddesses at the uh, in the towns in between, and they all become confused together. The local deities get mixed up with the universal deities, and after a while, it's, you know, a person who have to have a, a, a PhD in Egyptian religion to figure out how to worship the gods uh, that they had down there. But certainly Potiphar was probably a religious man. He probably at least worshipped Ra, for whom he was named, who was the sun god of Lower Egypt, somehow connected with the Creator. Later on, the sun god of, of Upper Egypt, Egypt and, and Lower Egypt would be merged as a single god, Amun-Re. And that would be the, the god of the, of the empire, which would come later on, at the time when the Israelites would leave, would leave Egypt. But there was a plethora of gods that he had to have some kind of knowledge of and to worship. I mean, they worshipped all kinds of animals. If you've ever been in an Egyptian tomb, you see uh, painted on, this, on the walls of, of the tomb is, is a scene usually having to do with whoever is being buried in that tomb going to, to meet his maker, so to speak, and being weighed in the balances. And on the wall are all these funny-looking, they almost all have bodies of people, but they have heads of, of a jaguar or of a jackal or of, or of a hawk or of you know, some other thing. They're really interesting looking people they are. And so many different animals were worshipped uh, by the Egyptians. The crocodile, for example. <laughs> I guess if you ever went swimming in the Nile, you'd probably be ready to worship the crocodile too if he'd stay away. But this man, Potiphar, probably had never witnessed divine intervention like he saw once Joseph was in his household. Certainly he had seen the uh, Egyptian priests carry out their magic as Moses would see later on. And certainly certain phenomena of the universe which are hard to explain, you know, a comet, a lightning storm, flooding of the river, whatever it was, was attributed to the gods, but, but not in a way that was really known or understood. But here we have the example of the day-by-day -day manifestation of a god in the life of this man Potiphar through his blessing upon Joseph. It was so inescapable that it's even mentioned in the passage that Potiphar understood that his blessing came from the god of Joseph. That's quite a statement to be made by a man who didn't believe in a single divine being, but in this, this great wide pantheon of gods and goddesses. Whoever this Yahweh was, he was powerful and he was benevolent. Ever study polytheisms very much? 
you go through polytheism, you discover there are very few benevolent gods. They're almost all capricious and dangerous. If you don't do something just right, they'll zap you. And if you do it right, sometimes they zap you just for the fun of it. That's at least their understanding. And so here we have a God who is obviously benevolent, obviously powerful, working here in the land of Egypt to bless this man Potiphar, so much so that Potiphar said, Joseph, you're going to be in charge of everything I have. I'm going to raise you to head of my household, and you're going to be in charge of everything that I own. It is your responsibility. And in verse 5 of the passage, it says specifically, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. That, I think, bears underscoring. This was very apparent to Potiphar. It must have been a turnaround like night and day for him to recognize this guy being here has changed everything for me. It's important to note God did not bless Potiphar because Potiphar was a worthy man. God did not bless Potiphar simply out of his mercy. God blessed Potiphar on account of Joseph. It is specifically stated. And from that we can draw a very important parallel in our own lives. Potiphar was not blessed because he was worthy. You and I are not blessed because we are worthy. We are blessed not because we deserve it, but on account of Christ, right? On account of Christ, we are blessed. On account of Joseph, Potiphar was blessed. On account of Christ, we are blessed. I think it's very, very important for us to always remember that because it's so easy in our society where everything is oriented towards rewards. You get a higher batting average, your reward is a bigger uh, contract next year, you know. You complete more passes, you get a bigger contract for next year. You, at your job, you, you earn the company an extra few million dollars, they'll give you a bigger contract next year maybe. We're all oriented that way. And it's almost like, well, if I teach more classes, and if I go more door to door, God's going to bless me more. It's not on account of our worthiness, on account of our effort that God blesses us. It's on account of Christ. And that blessing grows in our lives as we walk obediently with Him and are faithful to Him. And that's what comes out of Joseph's life. The faithfulness of Joseph, the obedience of Joseph to his God yielded great benefit in the life of this man. And he would go up the ladder. He'd have a major setback fairly early on, as we'll be getting to. And uh, that uh, last phrase of the sixth verse kind of opens the door uh, for that. But nevertheless, God's blessing was upon him. His rise was meteoric. Just, just think about it now for a moment. Joseph was sold by the Ishmaelites into Egypt. Here we have this Asiatic kid. He's only 17. He's on the market here. Potiphar buys him. Potiphar says, you're such a nice kid, I'm going to make you head of my household. Is that what happened? I don't think so. <coughs> Joseph was brought into the household, and he was turned over to the other servants and said, here's a new kid on the block. You know, break him in. Well, you can imagine what older servants who'd been there for a long time are going to do with a young servant, right? You're going to do all the dirty work. You've got the worst jobs 
possible. The whoever was the last guy added is glad to turn over the worst jobs to you. You are the servant's servant. You're the bottom guy on the totem pole. You've got the worst job in the whole household. So Joseph didn't start at the top. He started at the bottom. And that's where the testimony of, his power, of God's power in his life comes in. There are people who graduate from college with a BA in business administration. They want to become president of the company. Or somebody who graduates with a BA in, in Bible and expects to be the pastor, the senior pastor of a thousand-member church. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> you have to be willing to start at the bottom. No matter what your preparation has been, you need to be willing to start at the bottom and to work your way up in the, uh, in the work of the Lord, which is what it really is. Joseph's position, though, was changed very radically and very rapidly. And I think a lot of it has to do, you remember the parable Jesus gave. Let, let me, I didn't put this on the outline, but in Luke chapter 19, Jesus gave a parable about a nobleman who went away to a distant country to inherit a kingdom. And in the process, he left behind certain servants who were to invest his money for him. And we won't read the whole thing, but in verse 15, it says, And it came about when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called him in order that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten more minas. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Be in authority over ten cities. And then the second one, in verse 18, the second came saying, your mina master has made five mina. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. The point of it is, and Joseph learned this well, and his life is a testimony of this truth. If we start with the little thing and we do it well, then we're worthy in man's eyes to be elevated to the next level and to have greater authority and, and greater responsibility. And as we prove, our, prove ourselves faithful there, this will continue to happen. Joseph started at the bottom as a servant's servant. But he did it well. He didn't gripe. He worked hard. He did it in such a way that probably the servant for whom he was serving said, well, you did a good job. Now, I don't know if you really said that or not, but that he would have to at least admit in his own mind. And as a result of that, Joseph was leapfrogged up in the scale of servants, I guess you could say. And it was very, very soon obvious to Potiphar that this man was a special person, that he was characterized by ability, by commitment, by conscientiousness, but something beyond that. His God's hand is upon him. And the hand of his God upon him is blessing me. It was a powerful testimony to this man, Potiphar. Put yourself now, if you will, in the place of some of those servants under whom Joseph had served. Joseph is now catapulted to the top. He's the head of the whole household. The passage says, nothing did, did Potiphar bother himself about his household except what he'd eat. Everything else was in Joseph's charge. Now, think of being that servant who, under 
whom Joseph had served for a while, and you kind of treated him badly. It just made life miserable for him because you felt miserable and you wanted him to feel miserable. While you're in this position, you're going to feel miserable because I did. Think what the guy is going to think now. Uh-oh, this he's had dude. <laughs> I mean, he's got power of life and death over me. I'm sure Joseph, because of the characteristics that are displayed later in his life, had mercy upon those persons. But you can imagine the fear was in their heart for a while as they must have thought about how they treated Joseph. Why did, why did Potiphar do this? Potiphar did it for one reason, so that he would not have to be concerned about how to run his household. He could go off and curry favor with Pharaoh. He could be there and, and, and do things for Pharaoh that he'd never done before to get Pharaoh's greater concern for him and interest in him and, and possibly even more you know, goodies thrown his way. And, and not be concerned about what's going on at home because Joseph will do everything right. And not only that, he'll do it better than I could do it if I did it myself. And thus his, his wealth was multiplying. And Potiphar had nobody to credit except Joseph and the God of Joseph. When Joseph was living with his father, we could say that his faith was simply the faith of his father and his, the extent of it was only as, as great as it pleased his father. It made his father happy for him to bow to the God of his father and to say these things. And, and therefore, Joseph's faith was, was just that of his, of his parents or of his father and, and not really his own faith. And so when he gets put in a difficult situation, that faith is likely to evaporate. But that isn't what we see at all, is it, in this particular passage? We discover here that Joseph's faith is genuine and it is personal. And it's not because Joseph was thrown in a hotbed. Well, it's easy to grow in a hotbed situation. But what if you're under, under, under great adversity as he was? I mean, Joseph was thrown, I mean, he was young, he was impressionable. And he was sold into Egypt. He'd never seen a world like Egypt before. And it was a land full of gods and goddesses. And we may not think about it, but if you start reading a little bit in, into Egyptian uh, mythology, you discover it's very sensual. Sexual aspects of it are, play a big role. And all these things could make an impression on, on a young man such as he in this very sensuous culture in which he was placed. But through it all, he remained true to his God. His father's faith was his faith. Now, what we have to also do is extrapolate from this a little credit for Jacob. Jacob taught his son well. Jacob was far from a perfect man. But Joseph came to know the God of his father. And certainly there was testimony to Jacob's teaching and some measure of Jacob's example here in making that a reality in the life of Joseph. Joseph's faith remained strong in spite of the fact that his world fell apart in a way that I don't think any of ours ever has or ever will, unless some of the prophecies of Scripture start happening in the way some of them interpret them as happening. But think about it. Joseph was a Bedouin boy who had lived in relative comfort in the land of Canaan. He went up to Dothan to check on his brothers, and his world was radically transformed. And he was transported 
from Dothan to Memphis. Now, to go from Dothan to Memphis in those days would have been culturally like us being transplanted to Venus or someplace. I mean, it was that radical. Now, we're a cosmopolitan people here. We have people from all cultures who live in our country, and we have television. We can sit and watch Discovery Channel, and we can see all these cultures all over the world. We can go visit them. So we're not shocked about these things. But, but for Joseph, the world of Egypt was completely alien to him. And what we need to recognize, too, was it was a vile, vile land. It was a land of tremendous demonic influence. And that cannot be downplayed because we're talking about spiritual warfare here. There was no one and no thing in his life or in his environment to support his faith in God. There was no significant other he could go to and say, pray for me, I got this need. There was no Bible he could pull out and read. There was no church he could go to, no prayer chain he could call. It was Joseph and Yahweh, and that was it. Is that enough? Yes, it is enough. Not that we shouldn't have prayer chains. Not that we shouldn't meet together. Not that we shouldn't have somebody to pray for. We need all those things. But Joseph had nothing to support his faith in a land that was totally pagan and idolatrous. And if you could see into the spiritual realm, you'd see all these spirits flitting around, these evil spirits, flitting around these gods and goddesses. Were these gods and goddesses just purely the invention of a human mind? Somebody sat down and said, one day, let me think. I want to think up a god. What shall I think about? These were brought about by the influence of evil spirits. And Paul gives us a sense of that as you read through some of his letters about the spiritual forces behind the gods. They're not gods, but they are demonic forces that are behind these gods and goddesses. And so this gross idolatry was all around Joseph. He was in the midst of it. Joseph's rapid advancement in the midst of a totally pagan and alien environment illustrates the fact that God can and will overrule the forces of hell anytime, any place he so chooses. All the gods and goddesses of Egypt could not amount to a hill of beans before God Almighty. God's promises are not only for eternity, but they are for here and now, and that's illustrated here in the life of Joseph. And God honors his faithful people. It's one of the strong messages that comes out of the life of Joseph. God honors his faithful people. Now, he may not raise us up to be prime minister of a country or president or even governor, Lord forbid, you know, who we don't know what he will do, but he will bless us in this life as well as the next. In Joseph's case, he chose to raise him to a position beyond all precedent in the life of the Israel nation up to this moment. Well, that brings us, we're not going to start in on it today, but it brings us to verse seven, verses 7 through 18, which are introduced by what would seem like an off-the-wall phrase. I mean, we're reading the story about Joseph's advancement, and suddenly it says, and Joseph was handsome in form and face. So, I mean, there's nothing to indicate that that's what had anything to do with his advancement so far. Well, that's not the purpose of the statement. The statement is there to introduce us to verse 7 and to introduce us to Potiphar's wife and to introduce us to a great crisis in the life of Joseph and one which made it seem like 
Here he was flying so high and suddenly he's blasted out of the sky and crashes down into the pit, it would seem like, because he goes to prison for doing the right thing. So we'll look at that next week.